All right, I know that these last two Sundays have been really heavy hitting, okay? Uh, if you look at chapter 3, where we've, as we've been making our way through the book of 2 Timothy, you come upon this statement in chapter 3, verse 1, but realize this in the last days, difficult times will come. And beginning there, he starts talking about the depth of human depravity, and he talks about the deception that is going to exist in the world. And it is difficult days. I mean, it's difficult if you plan on walking with God. You've got all sorts of obstacles. And he begins to actually talk about them. Not only these obstacles in the world, a lot of them are in us. And so he says in verse 2, for men will be lovers of self. You see that? You see, if you will not have Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, you will, will not trust him, then yourself, you become your own little God. And you are governed by your passions, your lusts. Whatever you want, you'll create your own set of morals and you will try to live life apart from God and try to receive maximum fulfillment from it. And so he actually talks about what does that look like when you will not follow Jesus? He gives you 19 descriptions of what total depravity looks like in a human heart and in a fallen world. And it kind of concludes there in verse uh, four, where he says they're going to be treacherous, reckless, Conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You'll be a lover of self, lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. But what happens is, if you do not have God to know him, to love him, to trust him and enjoy him, you've got sin and sin has consequences. And maybe even you personally, you have been beat up and you are whipped and you are scarred. You might even feel like you're barely breathing because of the implications of sin in your life. The beauty is God is a rescuer and he gives us the gospel. He sends his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die and pay the penalty for sins and to rise again that if you will believe in him, you can be a lover of God because God has first loved us. And yet... In the midst of all the difficulties within us and in our world, to make matters more complicated, our world is going to be filled with spiritual deceivers. Look at verse 5. You are going to find that there will be those who will be holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. You're going to find that in this fallen world, there are all sorts of spiritual deceivers. They're going to look good. They're going to have the right phrases. They might have their office in a church. They might be able to gather thousands. They might wear particular robes to identify them as a spiritual authority. They might have a clerical collar. They generally don't wear shorts at the same time. But whatever, they are going to be spiritual deceivers in this world. And they're going to want an audience. And so that's what we looked at last week. And it, it is difficult and strong medicine. But God lays out in that passage, you can listen to it if you missed it last week, a profound plan of how Satan uses the deceived to become deceivers. It's a plan that's pretty simple. It begins with infiltration. They get buy-in that their ideas are valid, an alternative to this God of the Bible and this repentance and believing in Jesus. Then there's manipulation. They start twisting the heart and the minds, and that's what you actually see. They enter in, they're trying to captivate weak women, they're led by various impulses, they're, they're all torn up about their sin issues and the guilt, and uh, 
They manipulate. And the final step is separation. Infiltration, manipulation, separation. They seek to separate people from the truth and those who teach it. Remember, they actually, uh, Paul gives us uh, a demonstration of that. He names these two guys, verse 8, Janus and Jambres. They opposed Moses. These are, according to uh, Jewish tradition, Janus and Jambres are the names of two of the magicians that uh, tried to oppose Moses when Moses was telling Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember, God was using him. God does miracles through him. And at first, these Egyptian magicians, they were successful. Through the power of Satan, they were able to kind of replicate, to a degree, these miracles. But eventually they said, listen, we can't do this. They came to a miracle they couldn't do. And they said, the hand of God, this is the finger of God. This is the real deal. And according to the Jewish tradition, these two guys, Janice and Jambres, they became, quote-unquote, proselytes. They faked that they were now going to be followers of Yahweh, and they joined the Jewish gang. And as they're making their way to the, on the Exodus, remember, God has Moses come up on Mount Sinai. He's going to give him the law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and how to live for his people. And there's a party going on down at the bottom of the mountain. And apparently the guys that led the charge of creating a god that they could follow, Janus and Jambres, are their names. And you remember what happened. We talked about it last week. Moses comes down. Judgment is brought. And it's apparently held, according to their tradition, that these two men died, as well as all the rest that participated in this belief and this creation of a false god. Friends, there will be spiritual deceivers. So how in the world, in the midst of such human corruption and such spiritual deception, how does God develop Christ-centered believers? That's why I'm so glad you're here this morning. Because the text we're looking at today is going to tell us how that happens. This is the need of the hour. If you are a parent or a grandparent, if you have any ministry whatsoever with our children, youth, students, college kids, small group, you're working with the ladies, guys, Bible studies, wherever, you're a spiritual leader. If you do not develop a Christ-centered life and make investments in others, spiritual deceivers will fill the gap. And so after this gruesome autopsy of depravity, Paul tells Timothy, let me show you how you develop as a Christ-centered believer. The first thing is, is that you are going to need guiding mentors. He says, verse 10, Now you followed, and then he gives the example in which he said, In contrast to the ways of the world and the wickedness of deception, you followed my example. What he's talking about is a theme of this book. It's discipleship. Remember, it begins all the way at the very beginning of this book. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 2, And the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you've heard in me, what you've seen, I want you to pass on to others who will be faithful to do it to others as well. Four generations. Because after all, Jesus gave us a commission. Anybody happen to know where it is? And what it is. Whoa, we're in trouble. Are you serious? Does anybody not know what Jesus has left us to do? 
go to Starbucks? Who said that? What? <laughs> what? No. No. Okay, maybe I'm mishearing here. Uh, somebody, you pointed to someone that's got the answer? They got it right there? Okay, that's right. What are you to do? We are to make disciples of all the nations. Did you know that? Anybody know where it's found? Matthew. Good. 28. Yeah, look, man, we are learning here at Fellowship Bible Church. That's right. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The final verses. If you're a Christian, this is what Jesus has commissioned you to do. The resurrected Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so you see Paul doing that. That is why it is so important that you have guiding mentors. We are to involve ourselves in the lives of others. And I'll tell you, we got a lot of young guys and gals in our church. And you know what they need? They need some mentors. They need someone that's just a little bit further down the line that is willing to encourage them, to pray with them, to give them a little bit of coaching, to help them understand God is sovereign. He's going to see you through this. And so he says... You, Timothy, you know my example. I've mentored you. I've discipled you. Every Timothy needs a Paul. Every Mary needs an Elizabeth. And Paul says, you, Timothy, you have seen my message both in words and more powerfully in my way of life. And so he says, now you followed my teaching. You see that verse 10? Remember all those times, Timothy, we'd had that little oil lamp? We roll out the scroll, the scriptures. We talked about what does this mean? Why is this important? You see how this text points us to Jesus. It shows us our need, our sinfulness, that we can't simply do the things that are written here. We need Christ. You see these prophecies? Remember, Timothy, all the different times we talked about them? Prophecies written a thousand years prior to Jesus. Seven hundred years. Specifics of where he's born, what he'll do, miracles. The fact that he'll die and rise again. Even how he's crucified in Psalm 22. Do you remember all of this? this you remember my teaching. Uh, remember all the times where you saw me presenting truth in small groups along the riverside? Even in front of large groups in various churches? You followed my teaching. You also followed my conduct. You see that? Speaks of one's manner of life. Not only did you hear the words that I said, but you saw the way that I lived. You followed my conduct, and then you also followed my purpose. This is an interesting Greek word here. It means to set before. You saw how I set before me this mission. The mission of knowing God and making him known through Christ. It was a mission to enjoy communion with God and to help every single person truly know Jesus Christ and to grow into the fullness of maturity in him. Remember, Paul actually writes out his personal mission statement. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, he talks about, he says, Remember the mystery that has been previously, uh, it's, been dis, it's been concealed, but it's now been revealed to the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you. So many people think that being a Christian is following uh, a list of rules, abiding by a certain ethic, uh, a certain moral code. You do these things and that makes you a Christian. Christianity is you and I being inextricably united with Christ. The Bible is clear that what makes you and I a Christian is that Christ literally has taken up residency in the lives of his people. He has given us his spirit. It is 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. And right on the heels of this statement of the glorious gospel, you have Colossians 1, 28 and 29, the very next two verses. And he says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, every person complete in Christ. The word complete, Greek word teleos means fully mature, complete, perfect, that they come to the fullness of maturity in Christ, their character, their convictions, how they treat their spouse, their families, even their enemies, how they go about their work. There is a Christ-centeredness to life. That's what I've given myself to. That is the purpose in which Jesus has called me to. You've seen me time and time again put this purpose in front of me. Despite the difficulties and the hardships that I faced, all the unknowns, you, Timothy, you've seen it. And so he says, follow my example. You've seen when I've been viciously attacked, uh, when the carping criticism, uh, having to live with difficulty, uh, when I've tried to express truth or to love people and I've been mocked and ridiculed. You've seen me run out of towns and out of cities. You've seen me viciously attacked by Jews and Gentiles. And yet you saw that I had a purpose to my life. I live my life on mission. And I'd like to ask, are you living your life on mission? What is the mission? I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all the nations. Is there anything about your life that as you're sitting there right now thinking about, it's like, you know what? That's reflected in some of the priorities of my time. It's, uh, you know what? I see my finances. I see even giving for the furthering of kingdom work. Uh, I see myself being intentional in not only growing as a Christian, but giving my life as a Christian to others. You've seen my purpose. And then he goes on to start talking about some of these uh, like cardinal virtues of the Christian life. Look at this. He says, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose. And then he goes, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. You have seen my faith. Let me give you a simple definition of faith. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is taking God at his word. You've seen how I truly believe that I trusted God. I'm a follower of Jesus, even when I don't know how it's all going to work out. Why, there's a lot of mystery to our faith, and I'm okay with that. I don't have to know. God doesn't have to tell me why this all happened, why I went through this. But you saw that there was authenticity, a genuineness to my faith. And you also saw, you followed my love. A love of commitment, of concern, of care, of care, a love of choice. So often we think that love is like an emotion. And when I've got emotions for you, you make me happy, then I will love you. And when you don't make me happy, or I'm not feeling it, well, we're going to part ways. You see, God loves us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, right? And what, the love that God has for us is a love of choice. Even when we're wicked, wild, and out of control, when we're trying to live life apart from God, God still loves us. It's a love of choice. And friends, that's the kind of love that God is seeking to develop in the lives of his people. It is a supernatural love. Believe me, you cannot do it on your own. You try to love some of the unlovable people in your life, whether you're related to them, uh, maybe they're in your neighborhood, maybe they're even in your church. You can't do it by yourself, but through Christ, 
all things are possible. And Timothy, you followed my love. You've seen me love even the difficult people. It was a choice. It was the work of God. You've even seen me. You followed my perseverance. He has the idea of bearing up under difficult circumstances and difficult people. And you've also seen, you've seen how I've handled even persecutions and sufferings. You see that in verse 11? Now, I know that verse 11, it might be like just, oh, that's just words on a page. I'll just take it in one breath, read it, and move on. But I want you to know what you're about to read in verse 11 is the painful reality of the life of the Apostle Paul. Every word, each name brought to mind just how difficult and how painful the sufferings and the persecutions that he endured. And he listen, he says, verse 11, the persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all... The Lord rescued me. Now, these Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, these events actually took place on the first missionary journey. Paul picks up Timothy on the second missionary journey. Remember, Timothy's a young guy. He's just doing a great job in these couple different churches there. And he says, I want this guy to go with me. But so uh, inherent to Paul and his, mystery, and his ministry were these sufferings that he endured. It was really a part of his spiritual DNA. Whether you actually saw the markings of his body, of the sufferings that he endured, you certainly knew that this was a man who had counted the cost and was following Christ. He wasn't a fickle believer, a fair-weathered, faithful guy. No, he was the real deal. At Antioch, this is Antioch and Pisidia, the Jews uh, incited devout women and some of the leading men to stir up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And so they had to leave the region. In Iconium, there was an attempt made by both the Jews and the Gentiles to mistreat Paul and Barnabas and to even stone them. When they got wind of this, they decided it's time to go elsewhere. But you see, Lystra, when Timothy read this, Every time he heard Lystra, you know where Lystra is, don't you? It is Timothy's hometown. It was in Lystra that they took Paul and they literally stoned him and left him for dead. After they had pelted him with stones, he was no longer moving. I mean, blood gushing everywhere. Eyes probably swollen shut. Maybe he got a few broken bones. Threw down the last stone. And they left him for dead. But do you remember what happened? Paul gets up and he goes back into Timothy's hometown, back into Lystra. You want to know what a real man looks like? What faith and strength looks like? It looks like the power of Jesus moving in the life of a guy by the name of Paul. No matter how mistreated he has been, he gets back up and he walks back in. You know, for Paul, he understood God does not always just miraculously deliver us. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he, he, he removes us out of a situation or he prevents something difficult from happening. And sometimes he does not. Like God miraculously released him out of that jail. Remember in Philippi? 
But there were places like Leicester where he took a beating. And it happened on more than one occasion. You see, to be delivered through persecution and suffering does not necessarily mean that you escape it. You see, the the Lord does not deliver us from trouble, but he delivers us out of it. He's with us in the midst. Sometimes we've got to go through tragedy and difficulty, and we do not know why. But God is is somehow glorified in this, that we hold on, that through the trials and the persecution and the difficulties, we still believe. It's like Paul could say, you know, with David, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord has delivered them, him out of them all. That's how God works. And so for Paul, part of his spiritual DNA was the suffering of Jesus. And you know what? We too, we go through difficulty and suffering. I mean, just kind of looking out, I know some of your stories. I know some of the pain. Some of you are, are very alone. You've been mistreated and abused. Some of you, you being a follower of Jesus, you turned out not to be all that popular with your family, did it? You faced difficulties and hardships. You are unpopular at work because Jesus is king for you. I want you to know the Lord uses your faithfulness in perhaps ways that you might never know. So can I just encourage you, wherever God's got you, just bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted and mentor and disciple the people that God has placed in your life. We really don't have to send you too far away because, frankly, you're surrounded by people that benefit from a a guiding mentor. Now, I want you to know something. If you are a Christian, if your plan is to live godly in Christ Jesus, I've got an assurance for you and you're not going to like it. That you will be persecuted. You're like, wait a second. Didn't sign up for that. I like Jesus, and I like lots of blessings, and pretty much do whatever I want. What are you talking about? How can you make such an assurance that I'm going to be persecuted if I really want to live godly in Christ Jesus? All you have to do is read the next verse. Look at it. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When Timothy read that, he knew that is me. He understood that, you know, I've followed the example. I've had these mentors in my life. Paul is saying, you followed my example. That means at times you're going to suffer. You're going to find that an unbelieving world is going in one direction. When you repent, turn 180 degrees and you start following Jesus, there's going to be some tension. It's not always going to be all wonderful. There's going to be any time that you say there's a king in my life and it's no longer me. That's going to rub some folks the wrong way because self-centeredness and sin is not really too interested in allegiance with Jesus. And you will suffer. Now you, if you live in the United States, you know, your suffering's pretty remote. It's not too bad. Remember when Paul got back up after he got stoned and left for dead in Lystra? He goes back in the city, and it says that they went back to all the cities that they had preached the gospel, and they told them this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. There's going to be tribulation that you will face. And Jesus said the same thing. You know that? If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it's hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You. 
There's an old saying, if you want to find out what's in the bottle, just shake it up. And you're going to see what's going inside. Yeah, it's one thing to follow Jesus when everything's nice and cozy and pretty good, right? What happens when life is hard and difficult? you got sort of challenges that you don't even know what to do. And life gets shaken up. You see what's inside the bottle. There is a very famous theologian. Uh, some of you like to go to his theme parks. His name is Walt Disney. I'm kidding. He was not a theologian. Okay, some of you are like, whoa, I didn't know that. He said this, though. Some men make difficulties. And difficulties make some men. You see, in the trials of life, that's where we see the goodness of the presence of Jesus and the transformation he brings. That's why James says you consider it all joy when you go through trials. Not because trials are fun. They're painful and they're hard. And in our humanness, we start despairing. It's difficult. But God is good and he's there. And trials keep us utterly dependent upon him who is the hope of glory. Now, where in the world did Paul learn to suffer like that? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, come on. People start throwing rocks at you. You'd be like, okay, I'm done. I must be doing something wrong, right? Can't be right if they're throwing rocks at me. Where did he learn to suffer like this? Well, I actually think he was mentored even before he was a believer in the art of suffering. There's a guy in the Bible by the name of Stephen. You find him in the book of Acts. Uh, he's just a church deacon. Uh, his job is to keep uh, all these women from fighting and to make sure they're fed, okay? So, you know, if you want to be a church deacon, that's your job. Keep people from fighting, make sure they're fed and happy, and so he's a church deacon. But, man, I tell you what, Stephen had a powerful ministry. And people took note. In fact, man, even the Jews who did not believe that Jesus is Messiah, man, had a problem with Stephen. This guy's on fire, man. And so they had almost this kind of like a little trial. It was, of course, not one, but they were just putting him on one. And remember Stephen gives a defense. He speaks of why he behaves the way he behaves. He starts speaking of Jesus. And remember, in Acts chapter 7, he gives the longest speech ever recorded in the book of Acts. And it is a theological marvel. I mean, talk about a guy who knew his Bible. He, in one chapter, gives a complete summary of the Old Testament. I mean, read it. If you want a summary of the Old Testament, read Acts chapter 7. And he weaves it all through, and he shows how the Jewish people, God's chosen people, time and time again, disobeyed, disregarded, disrespect, and said, we don't want any part of you. And God would send prophets and say, listen, you've made a covenant. You're my people. And you know what happened? You don't like the message. You just killed a messenger. And so they did. And so Stephen's tracing this all through, and he says, and this same pattern of Anger toward God and disobedience toward God. It's what drove you to kill the Messiah who is Jesus. Well, they just come, came unglued. You're calling Jesus the Messiah? You know what that is? That's blasphemy. What do you do with people that blasphemy? You kill them. And so they actually had a prescribed way of killing people and blasphemy. They, it was called stoning. And how it was supposed to be done, according to their practices, is that you'd haul the person outside the city because you, you didn't kill anybody inside the city. And the chief witness against this blasphemer, uh, after you threw the guy off a cliff, 10 or 12 feet, the chief witness would take a big stone and throw it on him. And if that didn't kill him, other witnesses then pick up stones and they just pelt the guy until he died. Stoning. In Stephen's case, 
This is just mob mentality. They just grab him. This is just kind of like out of the pages of the newspaper or what you watch on the news. Just, just go off. They just take this guy and they just start pelting him with these stones and they start just bringing him to death. I mean, Stephen now, he's got pain gushing. You can see him bleeding. He's probably got some broken bones. And, and then he utters this statement as he's starting to slip in and out of consciousness. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where did he get that from? Well, you know, that's what Jesus said. Remember, he's mirroring Jesus' cry on the cross. And he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And you know, his final words as he's laying there and these rocks are coming. And you hear this man crying out. You know what his final words were? Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Where did he get that? He got it from Jesus. Who said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And while this is taking place, it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, it's kind of odd. It says that those who were participating in the stoning were laying their coats down at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. Saul has nothing to do with the story. I mean, who cares who's holding coats? I mean, the last time you checked in your coat at a fancy hotel or you went to a nice wedding or banquet and you actually had valet parking... Does anybody remember who took your coat or parked your car? Anybody? Didn't think so because they're pretty unimportant to that, right? You probably remember what you ate or how much you overate, but you probably don't remember who took your coat or drove your car. But the scriptures take note of this. Because for Saul, who later becomes Paul, this is a transformative event. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1 He's mentioned again because Saul was in hearty agreement putting him to death. And he goes on a tirade. And he starts literally going from town to town, dragging Christians, breaking apart families, dragging them to courts to be prosecuted and to be brought to death. And you'll remember, though, as, the, as Paul's doing this, you've got to think that seared into his mind was the death of Stephen. He watched a real Christian suffer who did not give up, whose faith was greater than the stones he was facing as he's being pelted to death. And then, of course, uh, on Saul's journey to Damascus, he is confronted with the living Christ and he is converted. And it is a conversion that changes the history of the world. Friends, you do not know how God is using your suffering in this life. But rest assured, he most certainly is. Perhaps it's probably your strongest principle of being a guiding mentor. You see, you cannot measure the eternal significance of present faithfulness, especially when you suffer. Jesus did not come to make us safe, but rather to make us Christ-centered disciples. How does he do that? He does so through guiding mentors. And let me show you the other way he does that. He makes Christ-centered believers through guiding mentors and people with a growing faith. Look at this, verse 13. He says, you know, the Lord delivered me from all of this. We will be persecuted, verse 13, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Man, it's going to come to a place where thousands upon thousands will believe what is false Deception will be greater and greater, but you, verse 14, you, however, 
continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You continue, you remain, you live, you hold on to. Uh, if you ever read John 15, we are to what in Christ? Abide. Remember that? It means to live. And he says it in a present imperative. You are to continue to do this as a way of life, to be a growing Christian, a person with a growing faith. And he says, you, however, continue in the things that you've learned. You've learned this from me. Keep building upon it. Keep growing in your faith. You learned it from your mother and your grandmother. You remember, look what he says in verse 15, and that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood, you had a foundation. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5? Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. You had a sincere faith. They were teaching you the Old Testament, the sacred writings, from a very early age. And friends, if if you're a parent or a grandparent, let's give our kids a foundation for the future. And you do so by giving them the word. Giving them a growing faith so that they have something to build upon when they leave your home. And Paul says, listen, you've got a growing faith. You've known the sacred writings. They are able to make you wise. And you see, all of Scripture points to Christ. Do you know that the Bible is a hymn book? Did you know that? It's not a H-Y-M-N, hymn, singing book. It's a H-I-M book, a hymn book. Because all of the Bible points to Christ. It shows us our need. It shows us our, His power. It presents Him in prophecy. It keeps pointing to the one who will deliver. It brings about redemption, the one who brings about new creation. He's expanded upon in the New Testament, and He has promised a return. And you see what that glorious return looks like at the final book. But the whole Bible keeps pointing us to Christ. I don't want you to miss this because so many people have. Salvation, verse 15, is found where? Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's not faith in your good works, your baptism, your confirmation, your church attendance, how moral you are. You want real salvation. You want real relationship with God. It's right there in verse 15. I've underlined it because I do not want to miss this. It's found in the person, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is found through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's the gospel. The Bible, the law, the Old Testament, like Galatians says, it's like a tutor that's meant to lead us to Christ. And a growing faith, in a growing faith, you'll always find that there's the presence of the word that's encouraging a Christ-centeredness and a joy in Jesus. A Christ-centeredness in all that you do, not just Sunday morning, but throughout all of life. You see, God develops Christ-centered believers through guiding mentors and the growing faith. And if you're a parent, grandparent, you've got a ministry anywhere in the community, in our church, outside the walls of this church, that's what is needed. People who are on fire for Jesus. They're growing and they're being guided. Because as go the leaders, so go the people. If you've got a church with weak leaders, and they're pretty immature, and that immaturity is demonstrated, and really don't know God that well, and certainly don't know his Bible, you're in trouble. 
That is why we put such a premium emphasis on developing Christ-centered leaders in our church. Because as go the leaders, so go the people. I read about a, a family that had a serious tragedy um, during a period of influenza. Two of their children died. Man, how horrific that would be. And at Easter, when everybody was gathering for church, there was this family, what was left of them. And there's this mom and dad, and, and they're singing the songs of praise to Jesus. They're praying, they're reading the scriptures, and they're, they're, they're with the word as the pastor is bringing a message about the resurrection of Christ. And there was another boy in another family, and he told his dad, he says, Whoa, they really believe, as he pointed to that family. And the dad said, They believe what? Well, the boy said, They really believe in Easter. They really believe. And friends, that's what our world needs. Our world needs Christ in you, the hope of glory. A lost world and living believers. Friends, this is how Christ-centered believers are developed, through guiding mentors and a growing faith. Let's pray. Lord, how powerful it is for us to be here in your presence, to know your goodness. And for someone who has come here today, perhaps they've been far from you for far too long. Perhaps you've been working in their life for some time to bring them to this point of trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone. Would they simply pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. Now, today, I'm believing in Christ. And I ask that you would lead me and forgive me. May you be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, help us to be those who are Christ-centered in every respect. That we value and have guiding mentors in our lives. And that we are guiding mentors. And Lord, we need a growing faith to continue in the things that you have learned. Lord, only you can do these things, and we ask that you will. For your glory, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to know that I'm, I'm really glad that you're here this morning, because we have an amazing privilege today. We have the former senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, Lane Fuselet. He is down from Canada and he is actually with us this morning. And so I am going to invite Lane, if you would come on up here. And I want to just give you a little background to Lane. There's the microphone. How about that? Uh, Lane uh, graduated from the University of Texas, where he has a degree in psychology. Uh, then he went on to Dallas Theological Seminary, where he has a degree in Old Testament. And it's at this time, then he actually comes and becomes the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, where he served for 20 one years during this time he also picked up his doctorate from dallas theological seminary and he has been for quite some time now for 18 years been the senior pastor of philpot memorial church in hamilton ontario canada and so lane we are so glad to have you with us this morning what a privilege Uh, Lane has agreed, uh, I said I'd ask if I could ask him some questions and to interview, and so I've got some questions that you're not ready for. We'll start off with your most embarrassing moment. Uh, yeah, I've okay. got too many of those. <laughs> Just kidding. No, uh, Lane, uh, we'd like to ask you, like, 
tell us a little bit about Fellowship Bible Church in its beginning. Um, why plant a church in such a church city? What was that like and when did it happen? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, a lot of people ask that question, Grant. Okay. Uh, I had nothing to do with that decision. That decision was made by David and Pam Sibley. David was an oral, um, he became an oral surgeon here, of course, the mayor and state senator. When he was in school, in dental college in Dallas, they attended First Baptist Dallas, an adult class where a Dallas seminary guy was teaching. And they wanted to know where they could get more of that and sermons like that, so they were referred to Reinhardt Bible Church. He finished his training, moved back home to Waco, at least uh, Pam's home. And uh, he said, you know, we want that teaching. He contacted Dallas Seminary. And they sent a couple down, Tom and Suzanne Walters. And Tom and Suzanne, six weeks later, recruited us, Debbie and I, to do the children's ministry. My wife was a, a children's education specialist and a teacher, so I was actually her assistant. I was the assistant to the assistant. Um, she was a volunteer. They paid me gas money. So anyway, we came and helped start it, and it just it took off. It was amazing. Then the, uh, Thomas and Suzanne were here for three years, and I got kind of, uh, I thought I was on my way to Africa, but uh, uh, because the church was in crisis after they left, I, uh, I stayed on. I thought for another year it turned into 21 altogether. How about that, huh? So, now, why, why were people drawn to fellowship? It wasn't like you had, like, a really cool building or anything like that. <laughs> what, why were people drawn to fellowship? We met in a funeral home for a time. Nice. You can imagine the Sundays when there was a viewing underway. <laughs> I have vivid images in my mind. Of that yeah, still. yeah, okay. So, yeah, we had no place until uh, 19, late 80s. Uh, yeah, people were drawn because, you know, being Dallas grad, we did what Grant did today. Just open the text and explain it and apply it with effect. So that, that was unique because, in, in Waco at the time because... Uh, the sermon, a lot of sermons uh, around the city back then, I'm sure it's changed now, but it was, if you got the plan of salvation morning, no, morning night, and Wednesday night, then that was good, but you didn't get anything to grow on other than just that plan. So we wanted to make disciples who were rich and deep in their faith, and that actually happened. People were drawn to Fellowship Bible Church in the early days because the quality of life lived at home in the neighborhood, and in the marketplace. All of our growth was a result, not of an intentional outreach, but of drawn, people drawn by the compelling lives of the people in the church. Wow. wow. It was astonishing. That is really cool. It was a work of the Spirit, right? I believe it. So, you know, apparently a lot of the kids that actually grew up in this church, in the youth group, uh, they went on to continue walking with Christ, whether they went off to college or in the workforce, why, why was that, and why was that such a prevalent feature in the church? Well, I had no idea. I didn't even think about it. Okay. It was just what happened, right? And then I moved to Canada 18 years ago, and over the, over the months and years, I, most every older adult told me that their kids who had grown up in the church don't go to church anywhere, not sure if they were even Christians anymore. Turns out, recent surveys have shown that more than 80% of Canadian evangelical teenagers who were in youth groups, then go to college and leave their faith behind. They don't go to church anywhere. More than 80%. Hmm. Let that soak in for a minute. Hmm. And I'm going, you know, that didn't happen at Fellowship Bible. 
And uh, five, five, six years ago, my son, oldest son, Austin, uh, was getting married, flew up one of his best friends from <laughs> Fellowship Bible Church. They were in nursery to youth group together. And uh, he flew up to be uh, Austin's best man. And I said to him, I pulled the guy aside, and I said, uh, Aaron, do you, do you know anybody that you guys were in the youth group with who's not walking with Christ, who's not active in a congregation? And this, this is a reflective kid. He said, uh, excuse me, he was 30 years old, but anyway. He's a kid. He's yeah. a kid. Uh, he said, thought about it for 15 minutes. He never responds, you know, instantly. He thinks. He said, no, I don't know anybody who is in our group that's not walking with Christ now. So I, this was five years ago. So I spent a lot of time thinking about why those two numbers yeah. are so different. And I believe it's because of the teaching of the Word and not adding anything else to it. Not a new list of things to do in order to be loved by God. That's moralism, right? right. I do these good things, and when I do them, God owes me. And when God doesn't come through, I'm angry with him. That's just raw moralism. We didn't do any of that. We didn't do any of that. Did you get that part? None of that. So the kids didn't have... I mean, the Word of God is easy to rebel against, right? That's enough. That's enough law. Any law that we add just makes it harder for them uh, to repent and to walk with Christ. So I think that was the difference. Hmm. Wow. So can you give us maybe just a brief update about your ministry up in Canada? What's going on there? Yeah, well, it was a, it's a very different thing. A large church. We're 300 and maybe 350 with kids on a Sunday morning, and we're, in, we're one of the largest churches in the whole region. Wow. Uh, churches in Canada are very small. Um, I have friends who are missionaries to Manila, and they actually came home to Canada after 10 years because they said the evangelical population of Manila was 25%. And of Canada, 7%. So it's a non-Christian place. In fact, it's not post-Christian. It's anti-Christian now, mm -hmm. which is why I call it home. I love that. Mm -hmm. Every conversation I have on the street, working out at the gym, I'm bumping into pagans. And I love pagans. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we did was we sort of teach the Bible, teach uh, the glorious gospel that Paul talks about. Yeah. We preached that and taught that. And uh, five years in, I looked at the old church director and realized that 250 people had left since my arrival. Now, that's enough to make a pastor walk away, right? Yeah, it's pretty discouraging. It yeah. is. But then I looked at the new directory and I counted 400 names of people who had come since we arrived. Mm. And I realized, okay, Christ is purifying his church. Mm. And that church has become a, a very dynamic place. Of people just like I don't know I don't know you I don't know, I don't think I know any of you maybe a few in the in the room but just like fellowship had been and I, I pray that it is that way too people living the life delighting in Christ that wasn't enough because you can't one church can't can't reach a city alone so two other pastors and I prayed together planned together 13 years ago and we started a movement called True City TrueCity.ca if you want to look it up. And it's a movement of churches, about 30, 35 involved now, who are doing justice for the poor, embracing refugees. We, we, uh, our church focuses on refugees without legal status yet. And, and on and on and on. Mental illness issues, all venues where you can share the gospel, 
and show the gospel at the same time. So the, the movement has just taken off. Um, I, my standard, my metric for that movement, I said from the beginning, was I will know that we've been effective by the number of plants that we do, the number of church plants. And I'm happy to say, 13 years later, that I've personally helped mentor, uh, well, 12, a dozen church planters in the city. And now my own son, Eric, has joined that group. Um, my son, Evan, is going with him to plant. My daughter, Lori, is going with the church planter we just sent out last year from the church. So that's 14. Nice. It's that's really awesome. exciting. That is really exciting. So, Lane, you've been a pastor for quite a few years now. Way too many to number. <laughs> and you've been a faithful pastor. Tell us a little bit about just some of the trials and the joys of being a pastor. Right. Um, there is joy. And after I tell this story, I don't want you to think there's not a lot of joy in it. But there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain. Because in almost every church on the globe, if whatever problem in the church is the, is the fault of the pastor, that's what everybody thinks. Why didn't you fix that? You saw that. Why didn't you do that? Everything is the fault of the pastor. Nobody can stand up under that. It's impossible. So I felt that. I'm sure you have felt that. Most every pastor has. I don't know any who haven't. So one thing I learned was I couldn't take, I couldn't take the pressure of that and live. I learned through the advice of a, of a Christian counselor. He's a, a family practice doctor who set aside his practice and just does Bible counseling. <laughs> it, it was amazing. He came to our church to talk to our staff team. And a year in, and I said, you know, Jim, uh, I'm getting a lot of criticism here, but I'm new. They don't know me, so I don't take it personally. He said, just stop. If you don't take it personally, Lane, you misunderstand. It is personal. And if you don't take that personally, then you will never be challenged for, to forgive. And if you don't forgive, there's nothing supernatural going on in the room. So if you're going to experience the power of the Spirit in your relationships with those people, you're going to have to take it personally, forgive, and then act like you have been forgiven in the same way that you've given forgiveness. That radically changed my entire view of ministry. The other thing I learned about pastoring is that you also suffer. I mean, it's like you stand up and you proclaim the gospel as you heard it today, and there are going to be attacks that you cannot prepare yourself for. Ours was a family. It's always family. We moved there, left Austin behind to get ready for college here. And he was hit head on by a drunk driver in um, March 2nd, 2000. Spent eight weeks at Scott and & White and somehow survived. Multiple surgeries, all kinds of damage to his body. He survived and he's about 95%. But uh, Debbie and I were, you know... We were not 95%. It was devastating for us. Then we, later on, the, when he was a child here, 16 months old, he had spinal meningitis and nearly died there. Our second boy, Evan, was born here. Four months in, he almost died of croup. We're going, what is this between God and our family? You know, mm. Suffering, suffering, suffering. Then there, um, Eric, our third son, uh, the one that was a bass player in City Harmonic, Eric was uh, diagnosed with uh, 
with leukemia and spent two years in the hospital. Survived with lots of scarring, of course. But while he was in the hospital and I was watching him die, four times he was at the brink of death. I was so anxious and so worried about the next day. I don't think I can face this, God. I can't lose this. And Matthew 6 came to mind. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Every day has enough trouble of its own. And I realized that I had grace today. I had grace for today. But I didn't have grace today for tomorrow. So I started living in that room with him day after day after day. I grew to love my son like I never thought I could. And this, my most rebellious son, temperaments were just alike. We just knocked heads constantly. This son that I had so much difficulty with became one of my closest friends. He survived, but the point is not his survival. It's that God met us in that space. And that's the first time I felt this strong sense of his presence. It was because I said, God, I can only survive today by your grace. I got another chance to experience that when our daughter admitted to us at 16 years of age that when she was here with us in our home, a house guest sexually abused her repeatedly. We were embracing this kid, trying to help him recover from a fractious family. And he took advantage of our child. My three sons and I were glad that we were told there and not here. God restrained us from acting out of vengeance. She survived. With lots of counseling and prayer and talking, she's now a graduate, not only of university, but of victim services training. And she's on call for the police in Hamilton. At any moment, she could be called and go immediately to give comfort and counsel to a female victim of crime. I'm going, it's a miracle. She loves the Lord her God with her heart, mind, soul, and strength. And she is not bitter and angry anymore. That helps me. Of course, a year ago, April 5th, my wife, Debbie, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It was a difficult year. But again, we lived in the moment. We enjoyed the grace of God for her last 12 months so that when she died in my arms, I smiled. I smiled. Because her pain was gone. She was immediately transported into the presence of God. And then I had to deal with all the children at Philpott Church, who loved her and prayed for her every day. They needed to know why God had not answered her prayers. So there's much more work to do. But that's one of the things that I learned as a pastor. You must understand that suffering is part of the journey. And rather than being a distraction, it has become God's precious gift to me. Lots more, but that's... That's what we have time for. Well, that's powerful. Lane is 
standing before us, this is a faithful pastor. I believe that you're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Uh, Fellowship Bible Church has been so tremendously influenced and shaped by you and your wife. And if anybody is here where Lane was your pastor, could you stand or even come forward? We would like to just see you. There's Ruth there. Okay. Look at that. And we had quite a few at our first service. The seeds of the gospel and your work continue to bear much fruit because look at all these people and all that God is doing. We want to thank you, brother. Thank you. Let's, let's pray with Lane. Can we do that? Lord, we just are so grateful for this man. It's a real deal. Like he walked out of the pages of Scripture because your word and your son are alive in his heart. So, Lord, would you greatly encourage him? May he see your hand of faithfulness upon his life. And you who have accomplished much through him. Would you give him that calm sense of assurance and grace and hope? that you're going to continue to bear much fruit through his life. So we thank you for him. We commit him to your care. We praise you in Jesus' name.